Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good morning. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. One of my favorite children's books has been uh, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. (laughs) Do you remember this one? Uh, It was written back in the 1970s. I think it was actually published in 1970, and it has lots of staying power. Uh, It goes through the the day of, of a life of a little boy who has a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, right? First, he wakes up with gum in his hair. And that's never a good start to a day. And then as he gets out of bed, he trips on his skateboard. And then his sweater accidentally drops in the sink as the water is running. And this is just in the first few minutes of his day. And for Alexander, the day just goes downhill from there. Uh, His brothers find uh, prizes in their boxes of cereal. All that Alexander finds in his cereal box his cereal, right? Uh, at school, his best friend deserts him. The teacher doesn't like his picture of an invisible castle. Uh, in music class, he sings too loud. Uh, the, the day keeps going from bad to worse as he doesn't get any dessert with his lunch. The dentist finds cavities. The elevator door closes on his foot. Uh, he gets in trouble for fighting his brothers. There are no shoes at the shoe store in his size or color. There are lima beans for supper. And then there's kissing on TV at night. (laughs) He hates kissing. (laughs) The cat wanted to sleep with his brother and not him, and his nightlight bulb burned out. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And I think we all across the board have had bad days, haven't we? I don't think there's one person in this room that, that cannot relate on some level to Alexander. Thankfully, bad days end. Each morning begins afresh, and there's a chance, an opportunity to make each day better. But imagine, however, that that one bad day continued on to the next, and then the next day after that was even worse, and these bad days continued, each compounding on the day before, each adding its own hard times and struggles uh, to, to become an increasingly unbearable load. Week after week, month after month, how would you begin to feel? Maybe like there's no escape, like this will go on forever? Now you've begun, just barely begun to understand what depression looks like. But depression is much more than a a series of bad days. Depression is deeper and darker than that. And if you ever have been depressed, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm not just, again, talking about having a couple of bad days in a row here or or being down in, in the dumps or feeling blue. No, depression is different. It's deeper. It's darker. And depression isn't something that you can just snap yourself out of or will yourself to be out of in an instant. You can't get over depression uh, overnight by taking two Tylenols and calling your doctor in the morning. Uh, A couple of Bible verses a day sometimes don't even seem to help. 
A few years back, there was a blogger named Denny Baker, and he asked people to describe depression for those who have never been depressed. And he got back quite a few responses. I'll share a couple of them with you. Somebody said, depression is seeing no future and no answer for any of the problems in your life. Somebody else said, when you have depression, nothing is enjoyable. Nothing can make you smile. Somebody else described it this way. They said, you feel like you're a ghost, not part of the real world. Somebody else said, it's like drowning, except you can see everybody around you breathing. Another person said, depression is a dark, inescapable place. It's like being locked in a room with no light, no windows, no door. It's so dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face, let alone find a way out. Somebody else described depression as the inability to construct or envision a future. Somebody else said depression feels like slipping down, falling down into a dark, bottomless shaft and wondering if and when you'll, you will ever be caught. As you look back to where you fell from, which is where you know you need to get back to, you can see it receding further into the distance, the, the proverbial light, he says, becoming dimmer and dimmer, while the shaft into which you are falling becomes deeper and darker and all the more enveloping. That's depression. And if that describes you, know that you are not alone. Statistia reported that in January of this year, 22% of adults experienced depression. 22%. It's about one out of every four of us. According to the CDC, around 5% of Americans have regular feelings of depression, while 12% of middle and high school students have regular and severe depression. There is some good news, though. However, 80% of those who, who sought medical treatment, 80% of those, whether it was a medical or therapeutic treatment or maybe a combination of the both, 80% of those who sought treatment for depression see an improvement in their symptoms within four to six weeks. That doesn't mean that they are all better, um, but there, there are steps, significant steps towards recovery. The darkness does not have to last forever. We usually don't think about it, but David, the the giant, killing, warrior, poet, king of Israel, who was described as a man after God's own heart, David probably battled depression. And as we come uh, come to the Psalms, many again written by David, we see the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the ins and the outs of his life. And nowhere in the Psalms is that reality on display uh, more than in the Psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 22. Uh, The Psalm is longer, so we're going to read the first part, verses 1 through 18, and then read the second half in a little bit. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 22 with me and stand, if you are able, as I read God's Word. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18, reading in Jesus' name. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. 
To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from my mother's womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They, wa- they open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, an enemy of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you for the morning and the chance to gather together in your house and with your people. And thank you for David, a man after your own heart, but a man who was sinful and wicked, and we know some of his sins as they're described in your word. He was also a man who uh, repented of his sins and turned to you. He was a man who went through all the ups and the downs, the struggles and trials of life uh, that are so common to each one of us. And I pray today that as we look at these words written around 3,000 years ago, uh, that they would still continue to speak to us and that you would move in us and that you would work in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we went through this psalm, uh, these first 18 verses, I, I bet you noticed a few things. One of them was that some of those verses were maybe kind of familiar, I hope so. Many of those verses are recited in the New Testament, and we'll talk about why that is as we go through this psalm. Uh, but the second reason, or the second thing I, I think you probably noticed is that uh, there was this back and forth nature to the psalm. One moment David is high, he is upbeat, he is positive, he's hopeful. He's trusting the Lord, uh, but the next moment he's down, negative, and hopeless. Reading this psalm is a bit like riding a roller coaster with all of its peaks and with all of its valleys, all the ins and the outs. But, but through it all, through it all, David has hope in the midst of his darkness. And lest we credit David with having this unbridled optimism and hope, we, we need to recognize the darkness that David was in. He starts off this psalm with one main question, one major word on his mind. Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? As uh, parents of young children, we often get a lot of questions (laughs) that start off with, why? (laughs) Sometimes it's a general curiosity, right? Why does the earth go around the sun? (laughs) Sometimes why is not a question, but a statement of defiance. Why do I have to clean my room? (laughs) But sometimes why, sometimes why is pleading. I don't remember exactly when it was, but sometime within the last year, William was sick with a stomach bug. And as he's vomiting, he asks us, why is this happening to me? (laughs) 
What William wanted at that moment wasn't wasn't a lecture on germs and viruses. He, he didn't want us to go into the details of, well, this is the body ridding you of your infection and, and things like that. What, really William, what William really wanted, that's a tongue twister, was to be, uh, was to be done being sick. He, he was pleading to be done vomiting. He was pleading for deliverance. And it's the same thing with David here. Why have you forsaken me? doesn't demand a logical, rational A squared plus B squared equals C squared explanation to the problem. Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Pleads for, demands deliverance from the Lord. And David is in, is in such a rush to convey his feelings, to demand his deliverance, that his words are failing him. Uh, we, we don't pick it up in our English versions, but, but he's tripping. He's stuttering over his thoughts as they start to spill out from him. Literally, the Hebrew in verse 1 reads like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation, words of my groaning. David is spilling out his guts, not able to complete his sentences. His words just come pouring out. To forsake something or to forsake someone is to turn your back on them, categorically and unequivocally cutting them out of your life. And David feels abandoned, deserted by the Lord God. And underneath it all is this question of why. The Lord God, however, is, uh, is apparently silent. I cry to you by day, but you do not answer me. And by night, but I find no rest. Later on, the Lord would promise Jeremiah, and by extension the church, call to me and I will answer you. But now, all that David hears from the Lord God is utter silence. Utter silence from God. And again, David isn't looking for a rational, reasonable explanation to his struggles. David is looking for deliverance. He's looking for rescue. And as a testament to that truth, David appeals in the next set of verses, verses 3 through 5, to the Lord's past deliverance of Israel. The Lord has always been faithful in the past. And these verses, verses 3 through 5, recall times when the Lord delivered Israel and rescued her from her enemies. The Lord has always been faithful in the past. And first and foremost, David most likely would have been thinking of the Lord's deliverance of Israel from their enslavement in Egypt. For 400 years, Israel had been in Egypt and had become slaves while they were down there. They were brutally oppressed by the Egyptians. They had called out to the Lord, to, and the Lord heard, and the Lord delivered. In Exodus chapter 3, we read these words, The Lord then said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord God heard the enslaved Israelites' complaints and the Lord took notice by sending ten different plagues. Right, and You remember this from Sunday school. Each one of these plagues was a knock against a different Egyptian deity. And then after Pharaoh finally realized that he was beaten, he let Israel go. 
only to change his mind a few days later and chase down God's people, trapping them at the Red Sea. And again, it looked hopeless for God's people who had cried out to the Lord God. And again, the Lord heard and the Lord acted. The waters of the Red Sea were parted and the Israelites crossed on dry ground while the Lord God kept the Egyptians away. And of course, after Israel had gone through crossing on dry ground safely, the Lord removed his presence from behind and uh, the Egyptians chased and pursued and the waters of the Red Sea closed, destroying the Egyptian army. And time and time again in the Old Testament, the Lord God's faithfulness was on display as he provided for his people, as he rescued his people. Manna in the wilderness, quail for all the people to eat, water from the rock, judges to deliver his people from her enemies. And it's to this history, to this past performance of the Lord, that David now pleads, God, you've done it in the past. Please do it again for me now. However, David is mocked for trusting in the Lord and his faithfulness. Look again at verses 6 through 8. He says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by all the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Think of that earthworm, right? Sort of gross, but not so gross that you won't pick it up and put it on the end of a hook and then go fishing with it, right? But how much thought do you give to that earthworm as you stab a hook through it and throw it into the water to be eaten and half digested by a fish? (laughs) Do you give any other thought to that worm after that? No, not at all, right? This is what David feels like. Worthless, utterly despised, with no one who is on his side, nobody who is sticking up for him. And as David trusts in the Lord God, he is mocked. People make mouths at him. They, they wag their heads. We do this sort of thing when we sneer at somebody behind their back, make faces at somebody. These people who, who mocked and scorned and, and despised David were probably his, his brothers and sisters, the fellow Israelites as well. There's, there's no reference in this psalm to his enemies, to the Philistines, to other people who are outside of God's covenant people. These were the children of Israel who were supposed to be the image bearers and and the the bearers of of God's light to the world. And yet they are mocking David for trusting in the Lord. But despite this mocking, this scorn that David is getting, he says that the Lord has always been his hope. For from David's earliest memories, the Lord has been his God. Look at verses 9 through 11 again. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. You know, a lot of Christian testimonies begin, I was raised in a Christian home, and there wasn't a time when I didn't know the Lord, right? You've probably heard those before. Maybe that's your testimony too. Wonderful, right? But we we, we might be tempted to look at those and consider them as kind of boring, right? Just so-so. There's no drastic Saul to Paul conversion story. No rough history from the past that the Lord delivered us from. No miraculous death to life recovery and deliverance. But honestly, brothers and sisters, there is no greater testimony than a life of God's faithfulness to you 
and a life of walking with the Lord. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons that we baptize infants in the Lutheran church. We recognize that people have an inherent sin nature within us all that, that's passed on to us the moment we are conceived in our mother's womb. And that sin nature disrupts and taints every aspect of our lives. And yet despite that sinful condition, God's grace is freely available to all, especially the youngest. And yes, these little infants we bring to the Lord in baptism are able to receive his grace and are brought into that covenant of baptism, even as helpless as they are. On you, O Lord, I was cast from birth. David's hope had always been in the Lord. But yet, despite that trust and that hope, David was enduring some very dark times. In verses 12 through 18, he describes the darkness that he is enduring. I'm not going to take time to read through it all again, but he uses a lot of similes, a lot of metaphors uh, here to describe his, his struggles, the darkness, the oppression that he's confronted with. He describes his enemies as strong bulls, raving and devouring, roaring lions, um, dogs. Probably wild dogs, not your little fuzzy furry poodle dog, but a, a, but a wolf, right? He's so worn out and exhausted that he says that he is poured out like water. All of his bones are out of joint. His heart has been welted, melted like wax. He is utterly exhausted, too tired to keep fighting, unable to find the strength to go on. We don't know the exact situation that David was facing, but it doesn't sound pleasant, does it? Does it? Uh, maybe these words are a culmination of a lifetime of oppression and being beat down. I'm sure being a, a king will make you enemies. But I'm sure David wasn't just oppressed by, by enemies seeking his throne. I'm sure he was facing some, some oppression on a spiritual level as well. The devil, our mortal enemy, is a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And David, I'm sure, was harassed again on this spiritual as well as physical plane. And you know, sometimes, just like David did here, we're able to put words to how we're feeling. The, the depression or the angst or the pain begins to, to take shape in words. Sometimes, however, you cannot describe what you are feeling. In those times, we have the reminder of Scripture that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes with, for us with groanings too deep for words. Paul says that when we, or we can't adequately find the words to describe what we're going through, the Holy Spirit intercedes, goes to God on our behalf. In verse 19, then, there's a, a shift in, in David's thoughts, a turning of the page. In the first part of the psalm, David was, was down, then up, then down, then up, then down, then up, a wild roller coaster of a ride. But from verse 19 onwards, David fixes his eyes and his hope on the Lord. And David recognizes that the Lord, instead of being far from him and forsaking his people, the Lord has always been near to the hurting and the broken. The Lord is always near to the hurting and to the broken. Look at these verses here. We'll, we'll do 19 through 24. David says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You be my help. 
Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he called to him. Earlier, David had no hope no help. But here in verse 19, he acknowledges that the Lord is his help. And again, David pleads for rescue, for deliverance, for salvation. And again, he uses some more examples to describe how his enemies have been oppressing him. Dogs, lions, wild oxen. And I love verse 24. There's a a richness to the hope that it expresses. And uh, let's look at that again. It says, He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And I'd be the first to admit it's, it's a bit wordy and you have to, to stop and think of exactly what David is saying and, and what he is denying. Here in this verse, he is affirming, he is affirming a truth by denying the opposite. The truth that David is affirming that God cares for his people and that God does hear their complaints is affirmed by denying the opposite. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. To abhor something means to to regard it with horror or loathing, to detest it, to shrink back from. The Lord God has not turned back from nor loathed the suffering of his people. No, in fact, the Lord God is always near to, the, to his people and to the hurting and to the broken. And he is near you today. No matter what you are battling, no matter what you are struggling with or fighting, whatever trials you are enduring, the Lord is here for you. His heart is for the broken and the hurting. And how do we know that? How can we know that God's heart is for the hurting and the broken? God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever doubt God's love for you, look to the cross. Look to Jesus who died for you. Look to Jesus who loves you. Amen. And so in recognition that the Lord has always been near to the hurting and the broken, always will be, David responds by joining with the congregation in praising the Lord. And this is in verse 22 and then 25 through the end. Let me read these here. I'll read 22 and then we'll jump to 25. David says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then verse 25, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even, though, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, 
And it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. You know, one of the things that depression does to a person is to draw that person within themselves and away from others. Depression encourages isolation and loneliness and it pushes friendships to the side and cuts out family relationships. But in these verses here, David is joining with the congregation in praising the Lord. Uh, even again, back in verse 21, David has once again gathered together with others and, and is leading in the worship and praising of God, telling of the Lord's name to the brothers, praising the Lord in the midst of the congregation. You know, there's a great benefit in joining with others, isn't there? And I think it's safe to say that for most people, the hardest, uh, the most difficult part of the COVID moment uh, was the forced isolation, right? Whether it was from classmates or coworkers or extended family, from elderly parents, locked away, isolated in a nursing home, uh, the isolation, I think, was the most difficult for us to grapple with. We could put up maybe begrudgingly with a mask mandate when we had to or the social distancing aspect, right? We could, we could, we could do that. But being cut off from other people was, was difficult. The reality is that humans were created for community. We were designed by God to be with one another in community. And while social groups and, and friend circles definitely have their place, David says that one of the most helpful, one of the most beneficial places to be is with God's people. In the midst of the congregation, as David calls it a couple of different places in those verses, wherever God's people are gathered together. And in the New Testament, Jesus promises that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he is there in our midst. And so there's a power in gathering together and connecting with other Christians. If you're going through a dark time, you need loving, caring people of God who can remind you the truths of Scripture and remind you who you are in Christ. Gathering like this is good. Getting together around the tables in the fellowship hall for coffee is, is great. Getting plugged into a discipleship group or a small group is even better. People were created for community, created for fellowship. You know, the, the question that the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip as he read from the book of Isaiah has also been asked about this psalm. Uh, who is the prophet writing about? Is he writing about himself or somebody else? And as you read through some of these verses, you might have made the connection with Jesus and with the cross. The prayer of David in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was also prayed by Jesus as he hung on the cross, right? And then there are verses 7 and 8 there talk about the mocking and the, and the scorning, being despised by the people. And Mark actually in his gospel quotes these verses as well. Those who passed by Jesus derided him, wagging their heads, mocking him, right? The, the chief priests, one of the criminals who hung on the cross, they, he mocked Jesus. And then there are, of course, the verses there, verses 18, 19. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 
speak so clearly of the nails that held Christ to the cross. They divide my garments among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots, is fulfilled, as John notes, by the Roman soldiers who gambled for the tunic that Jesus wore. And in fact, John says that this scripture, Psalm 22:18, is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So who did David write this psalm about? Was it purely a messianic psalm looking forward to the Messiah, to God's Savior who was to come? Or does it describe David and the things he is going through at that present moment? And the answer is yes. (laughs) The answer is yes. It is about David. And it is also about Jesus. David was very much writing about the struggles and trials that he was enduring in life. However, finally and ultimately, Jesus is the new and greater David. And as such, he perfectly fulfilled this psalm. Jesus Christ experienced all of this too. We read in our scripture lesson for this morning uh, from the book of Hebrews. And there it said, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. Jesus was, always was, and always will be fully God. In his incarnation, Jesus became, at the same time, fully man, 100% divine, 100% human. And as a man, he endured every temptation that people face, every single temptation that people face. Yet, as the author of Hebrews says, he did not sin, not even once. And Jesus endured the full weight of suffering for you. Even though he had done no wrong, he was condemned as a criminal and he died on the cross. And at the cross, God the Father put the full weight of sin, all the suffering, all the sin upon his son. And Jesus became the sacrifice for sin that you need. Jesus gave his life for you, dying in your place and on your behalf. Death could not hold him, however. He rose from the grave, victorious over sin, over death, over the devil. And because Jesus succeeded, being tempted in every way, yet without sin, and enduring the full weight of suffering and conquering sin and death and the devil, because Jesus succeeded in it all, there is life and there is hope, even in the midst of the darkest hour. And it might seem bleak, But the depression you're going through won't last forever. The dark night of the soul will not continue forever. It will lift. Give it time. Look to the Lord. Find people who care and are able to listen to your heart and your pain. Seek out help, either medical or therapeutic. Look to the Lord. Gather together and worship with God's people. Look to the Lord, and and yes, I know, I I mean to repeat myself in that. And always remember, God's grace and mercy is, is freely available for you, no matter what you've done or where you are in life. Amen. Before the sermon today, we sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, right? It's a, it's a familiar hymn. It was written in 1750 by Robert Robinson, who was a, a new Christian, having found the Lord just a few years earlier under the preaching of the great English revivalist and preacher George Whitfield. And Robinson became a pastor in the Methodist Church and composed that hymn, again, only a few years after his conversion, and it became an instant classic. And the story is told that years later, Robinson left the faith and began battling depression, severe depression. 
And one day, as an older and sadder man, he was riding in a a stagecoach, and he happened to share that coach with a a lady passenger. And in the course of their travel, the gal began singing, Come Thou Fount, not knowing that its author (laughs) was sitting right next to her. And then she went on to tell Robinson what a blessing and encouragement that that hymn had been to her. And then she asked Robinson, you know, what do you think of that hymn? And as the story goes, Robinson replied, Madam... I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy the feelings I had then. The darkness and depression Robinson was feeling was overwhelming. And and as the legend has it, the lady said to Robinson, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise, right? And he was deeply touched by those words. And as a result, he repented. He returned to the Lord and and his fellowship and love with the Lord was restored through the words of his own hymn and the witness of this Christian lady ready to share her faith. And as a a contrast to to some of Robinson's doubt and the wandering heart that Come Thou Fount conveys in, in the last verse, the next hymn that we're going to sing is a reminder of God's grace that binds us. Uh, This was written about the same time as Come Thou Fount, uh, and the hymn is called By Grace I Am an Heir of Heaven. It's not as well-known, maybe not as peppy or upbeat, but it contains a a richness and a depth that we should remember in the darkest valleys of depression. And the third verse goes like this. By grace, these precious words remember, when sorely by thy sins oppressed, when Satan comes to vex thy spirit, when troubled consciences sigh for rest, what reason cannot comprehend, God doth to thee by grace extend. When you are beaten down by your sins and your enemies, when the darkness of doubt and depression attack, brothers and sisters, remember God's grace given for you. Remember Jesus Christ. Father God, I thank you for your son, Jesus, who leads us and guides us through all of our days. Thank you that he has conquered, he has won the victory over sin and death, and thank you that because of that, because of that grace and mercy, we are heirs of heaven. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.